Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. On this season of Making Sense, each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is dedicated to the memory of Janet Wright. Janet was an incredibly enthusiastic occupational therapist. If she were here today, she would have been one of the first to create and host a podcast where students, parents, and teachers could glean some practical information. She did not want OT knowledge to be abstract. She looked for it in everyday situations and in daily routines. Her family takes great pride in knowing that the Star Institute embraces the same passionate principles that guided Janet. As you listen and learn, keep her encouraging voice in the back of your mind and her infectious smile in your heart. Today, I am joined by Renee Allen. Renee is a pediatric occupational therapist who has more than 20 years of experience treating children and their families with sensory processing challenges in homes, schools, and private clinics. She worked under Dr. Miller and Dr. Schoen at the Star Institute from 2008 to 2011. She then opened her own small practice in Northeast Denver, where she continues to utilize the STAR model. She is a lifelong learner and enjoys the questions as much as the answers. She is passionate about understanding development through the independent connections of sensory processing, regulation, and relationship, and teaching parents and other professionals to be curious about these connections as well. Renee, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so in this podcast series, we invited STAR faculty to choose a piece of literature to discuss, and you chose Motor Development, Embodied, Embedded, Enculturated, and Enabling by Karen Adolph and Justine Hawk. Tell me a little bit about why you chose this article. Well, it seems like this year in particular, um, but I've also had kids in the past, I've had a slew of kids whose parents have come to me with regulation challenges, um, kids who were very anxious, who um, didn't do transitions very well, had lots of meltdowns. Um, and when I did my sensory evaluation, what I found is that these kids actually had significant motor delays. Um, and a lot of times in the past, I have, would expect that some of that anxiety would be because of, you know, um, modulation challenges, um, not being able to, you know, respond to the, to the sensory inputs in their environment. But um, these kids um, were able to do all the modulation pieces, but really struggled with um, discriminating their bodies and then moving their bodies through time and space. And it seemed like this was generating a lot of um, their anxiety and dysregulation and challenges moving from environment to environment. So when I found this article, um, it really tied together um, this piece um, of psych uh, psychology and social emotional development with um, how how dependent it is on motor development. And so it's just a great synthesis of an article of what I have been clinically seeing. Yeah, I loved that about this article in particularly the beginning when they kind of talked historically about a psychology and motor being explored um, either separately or being explored in very 
specific way, like a specific type of development. Um, and one of the key concepts um, that they talk about and propose is that motor development is fundamentally psychological. So that was really surprising and meaningful way to frame motor development for me. Um, they stated that psychology is the study of the mind and behavior and all behavior is motor behavior. So yeah, talk a little I, bit about that, but you see in clinical practice, um, what motor behavior tells you as a clinician? Well, I think it's that, that, um, that question that you ask yourself, how do we know that a child is having an emotion, right? Even we look at how their body is acting. So a child who's really angry might, you know, have a big body reaction um, to let us know, or an infant even that is hungry might have its own set of body actions that it does to let us know that it's hungry or it's frustrated or, or the baby's tired. And so we as adults are in, especially as therapists are, are trained to look at their motor actions to try to decide what their emotion, especially with our preverbal kids, um, what emotion they're having so we can help them um, manifest that in some way and help support them. Um, and so we, we, are, we are trained at doing that, but and parents generally do it too. But again, we use a child's behavior to understand that. Now, as a child, we learn, right, through our parents' interaction, and our interactions with others, how to interpret what other people are thinking and feeling. We use gestures, right? If somebody points to something across the room, that pointing gesture says, hey, look at that, right? And so our ability to both use our bodies to communicate um, and then to use other people's bodies to get messages and to know what they're thinking or feeling um, is integral to being able to have those relationships. Uh, be successful. But all of that communication depends on bodies being able to do actions that are um, interpretable um, and to be under understood. Yeah, that's really powerful. I see in clinical practice, one of the most impactful things you can teach a parent is that behavior is communication. Behavior is telling us something, right? And so whether we observe it as a behavior or as the child gets older, they know it inside themselves because they feel it in their body. It really brings us to the first point of this article, and that is motor development um, and its psychological expressions are embodied. Right. Um, so the author spends a lot of time talking about, you know, this embodiment of our emotions and our um, motor development. But obviously motor development is body because it involves how our body moves and actuates on the world. Um, so she brings up a lot of, a lot of um, good examples of how our bodies learn to be in the world and adapt to the demands of the world. Uh, and I just think that she makes us a lot of good points that have been very um, understood in the world of OT for a long time. Uh, I think that Jane Eyre originally was um, just very prophetic in her ability to describe the mechanisms by which we learn new motor behaviors. And when we do an action, we learn from that action 
And then we use that action, the learned experience from that action to sort of feed forward how we're going to do that action again successfully. And so we learn through trial and error. Um, and again, the key point for embodiment is, is we're learning, our body is learning how to be in the world and how to adapt. And I think that that is one of um, the main points that they make in this article. I agree. And they also point out that our bodies are not only learning, but they're changing, especially because they focused a lot on infant and toddler development. And so in order to compensate for the way our body is changing, um, becoming its own separate entity and um, growing and able to act on the environment, that learning um, comes through modifying actions. And sometimes it comes from solving a problem with your body or encountering an obstacle and having to adapt, um, which brings us to the idea that sensation informs that, informs the need to adapt or the need to change. Um, and so I too found myself thinking back to juniors and the importance of sensory processing and integration um, in informing embodiment for development. Yeah, I, I guess, uh, and I really want to bring it back to just the real world examples of how this actually just happens in normal development, right? So your stomach says that you're hungry and you get that sensory experience and you've got a bowl of oatmeal in front of you as a 10 month old and a spoon. And you know, if you bring that oatmeal to your body that you're gonna you know, satisfy that internal sensation of hunger. Um, yet the development of being able to bring a spoon to your mouth is not something you're born with being able to do. You have to learn it. And if you watch a, a 10 month old try to feed themselves with a spoon, they, you know, they don't know where to put their shoulder versus their wrist and how to angle the spoon so the oatmeal stays on it. And then when they get it close to their mouth, they hit their nose before they hit their chin before they eventually get it in their mouth. And so they, they trial and error in order and they feel it on their nose and they feel it on their chin and then they eventually feel it on their lips and they swallow that food and they satisfy that internal sensation. And so their entire sensory system is giving them the feedback that they need to learn to eventually make the small adaptations to their bodies in order to successfully get that spoon to their mouth to satisfy that internal need. Um, so that combination happens over and over in development for everything from walking to self-feeding. Um, but at the end, it's not just teaching how do I feed myself, um, it's teaching how do I use trial and error? How do I not get so frustrated that I quit? How do I learn to make smaller adaptations versus bigger adaptations um, in order to make um, that movement more accurate and precise. Um, and again, we do this constantly in development. I don't think we, that's one of the things I like about this article is I didn't appreciate the minutia of all the opportunities that these experiences, typical experiences give us to learn how to manage the regulation of trial and error. Um, and then all the small discrimination that can happen um, each time we try and succeed. And so that kind of brings me to the question of like, what happens if your motor development 
it or your sensory development isn't supporting that adaptation, right? Because that's what we see clinically. Um, what happens if trial and error doesn't lead to success uh, with enough frequency that the child wants to keep doing it? Um, and so I do think that we see that a lot clinically that these kids don't feel like trial and error is going to lead to the success. And so they stop trying sometimes or they um, quit before they start or they say, I can't a lot because their bodies have taught them that this doesn't necessarily work out for them sometimes. Which brings us back to the beginning of what you said, you know, we're recording this in 2020 and um, a lot of people are experiencing dysregulation because of everything that's happening in our world. But that's when we start seeing the children clinically because um, the frustration that builds up, maybe fear of moving through space, um, it all causes dysregulation. And it thwarts typical development. It thwarts skill attainment. And this article did such a beautiful job, like you said, of, of highlighting the nuance of all of that and how it all has to work together to produce these goal-directed and purposeful um, movements. A lot of... Um, mentions in this article were about adaptive. They talked about adaptive behavior. We talk about adaptive responses. Um, and we get that language from Gene Ayers um, because we're looking for purposeful and goal-directed responses to sensory experience. Um, and that kind of brings us to the next part of this, that, um, that motor development is embedded because one of the things that we look at is the context that all of this is happening in. We look at a broader context, right? If we're seeing what you were describing, what happens if the child is not adaptive? What happens if they're not learning or not able to make the mistakes? Um, one of the things that we look at is the context in which all of that is happening. So talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about the fact that motor behavior is situated in environments um, and even in relationship, which I think can be part of the way that motor development is embedded. Oh, sure. I think, um, I, I think again, I, I like the way this, these authors sort of pieced this out so we can think about environment um, itself being a format for learning. Um, and what we see is that anytime that motor learning happens, let's take the baby with the spoon again, right? So the baby learns in my high chair, I have to put my shoulder at a certain height and my wrist at a certain height and hold the spoon a certain way to get my food to my mouth. But mom and dad, dad then take me to a restaurant and I'm in a different environment doing a similar skill, but the height ratios are different. So the way they have to move their arm in relationship is coming from a different place. And so they have to adapt every time they're, uh, a baby is in a new environment. The space is different. If they bring somebody to an, you know, an infant to a new house, the carpet is different. Um, it might be hardwood versus carpet versus grass um, versus snow. Every time a child has to move in a different environment, their brains learn to accommodate for those small, subtle changes that um, allow them to be adaptive in a new environment. And so 
we, um, I think that environment, like you said, is not just a physical environment they have to make adaptations to, but the physical, but the relational environment. What are the embedded aspects of being near grandpa who is sedentary and doesn't move a lot versus being near a cousin who might move a ton in your space and um, be all over you? And so you have to, again, each person is going to bring to the relationship, a different physical environment and how they're interacting with you. And you have to be able to, again, make the small accommodations that allow for that interaction to happen successfully. And, and typical development really does a great job, especially when kids are getting out of their space and doing the exploration and parents are bringing them different opportunities and different environment and different experiences to really um, create all these little small changes that are that are telling the brain, I can adapt. I can adapt to this new thing. I can adapt. And we teach this in Mentorship One all the time when we're starting to teach about um, discrimination. Our ability to discriminate differences comes from us experiencing differences, right? And so this article um, speaks to those affordances that we learn and we learn about ourselves, we learn about our objects, we learn about other people, we learn about our environments through every experience that we have. So we teach experience, experience, experience is how we learn about our body, our body in relationship to a tool, our bodies in relationship to an environment, our bodies in relationship to other people. Um, we have to have this merit of experiences to teach them that those small adaptations. Yeah, I think you're really highlighting one of the points that they make. And that is that flexibility is imperative because in typical development, experience, experience, experience underlies meaning, um, which informs, you know, all this experience informs their sensory development and their motor development. Um, and I love that you pointed out about affordances because really what affordance is, is seeing opportunities for behavior in the environment, right? Which brings us back to this idea of environment, is it, you know, motor development as embedded in an environment. Um, and while we are processing what's happening inside of our body, the environment offers us information about things outside of our body. Like you were giving a great practical example of how we move around other moving children versus how we move around a more sedentary, you know, older adult like grandpa. Um, and that more experience in different environments introduced us to different objects so that we can explore their affordances. And how often do we see kids with either motor development or sensory challenges that just were not able to tolerate? being embedded in different environments. And so their experience is really lacking. Yes, I think that speaks to that article. The article speaks about um, action in, um, in service of exploration. So we have our motor movement says, oh, I see that shiny object on the other side of the room. I want to explore that. And then you roll or you crawl or you wobble over to that object to see what it is, right? And then they also say exploration in service of action. 
action. So you say like, I'm going to explore my body so I can actuate on the environment better. I'm going to explore all the different things my, my body can do. You see a baby crawl into a wall, which is one of my favorite things to watch. Um, the baby crawls into the wall and then they back up and then they crawl into the wall again. And then they back up and then they crawl into the wall and hit their head again. And usually it's two or three times before they realize I can't crawl through the wall. I have to go around the wall. Um, and babies in typical development do this all the time where they have to, um, they're exploring, they're using the actions to explore the affordances of their environment. Um, and you're right that our kids who don't um, have the motor capacity or the motor integration or the sensory integration lose out both on the actions that explore, um, but the exploration for the actions as well. Such a poignant part of this article. I was thinking about how circular this is when you were talking that new motor skills make new aspects of the environment available. And I remember my oldest, um, we had a definitive threshold between rooms. The board direction changed at the thresholds of the doors. And once he was able to move, he would get to the threshold, but not go further because he didn't think he could cross it because the floor looked different. But then once he got got off his belly, stopped rolling. Once he had the motor development of crawling, he would put his hand over and his other hand over and then bring his legs over. Um, and so that new motor skill made the new aspect of his environment available to him. And then the rest of the house was available to him. So it's just um, so great to bring it back to these practical examples because it, they're really hard to appreciate in real time when you're watching motor development. And it seems like when the kids are not able to adapt, when they're not able to recognize affordances um, is when we start seeing some difficulty either in sensory integration or in motor development, like you were describing at the beginning. Yeah, I think anybody who's had to baby-proof their house appreciates how that gradual world expanding for the child who develops more mobility, right? And so you can leave a little baby on a blanket, and that is their whole world. Um, but as soon as they start to roll, then that world gets bigger, and they crawl, and that world gets even bigger when they start to pull up on furniture. Now they can reach all those things at table height level. Um, you have to baby-proof a different level of um, of blocking um, or allowing them to explore. They just have more opportunity and their world gets bigger. And every time their world gets bigger, their brains get bigger and they get more capable and they become more worldly and more knowledgeable. Um, and all of the other, you know, cognitive, cognitive pieces start to follow. The language pieces start to follow. The more in the article, they talk about um, being able to carry, being a precursor for, um, language development, because once you can carry an item over to your parent and say, what's this, or you can say, open this, then the parent has to talk to you about that item versus if you're lying on the floor, you can't engage that type of, um, labeling exploration as well. And so their worlds just open up, um, by magnitude, um, when their mobility and changes and adapt and they adapt. But then again, the contrary is also true for our children who don't have that adaptive function where mobility 
is not as accessible or as fluid or as easy, their worlds remain really small and they become really fearful when they're asked to go into worlds that are bigger and have a lot more challenges for them and they don't have predictable routines around or predictable motor patterns. They're not sure those predictable motor patterns are gonna work as well for them in new environments and bigger worlds. Which is really the perfect segue to the next part of this article, which is all of this development occurs in a world that's specific to the culture the child has been raised in. And so motor development is enculturated. There are undeniable social and cultural influences on skill acquisition, on motor development, um, on the environment, the cultural environment that these children are experiencing, skill development in. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about how cultural norms, whether it's childbearing practices or the language that they speak, um, impact motor development. Uh, I think this is a great part. And Dr. Miller, when she was coming up with a secret and made sure to include culture is one of the things that we as therapists need to appreciate these kids and these families that we work with have their own culture. And we have culture with a big C, you know, being like, are they from a different country? What are the cultural norms of, of um, people who are seeking therapy that have different big C cultural, different country norms? Um, but we also have culture with a small C. What is the culture of the relationship? What is the culture of the child rearing practices? What is the culture of how parents interact with little kids? Um, you know, we have different motor actions we do that are very specific to our cultures. Uh, you know, and so learning to crawl is not is not something that they do. I lived in Ghana for a couple of years um, as a Peace Corps volunteer. And they didn't, they held their babies on their backs most of the day. And then they taught them to walk really early because crawling isn't really as much of an option when you have dirt floors and it's the forest and there's things on the ground that are dangerous. And so um, they are able to get to, you know, the same motor development, but they do it in a different trajectory than we do it. And I think we have to appreciate that, um, the, that those sort of cultural context in which the, the parents are, um, raising the kids? What are they used to do? What did their parents do for them? In some cultures, it's, you know, they don't have paper, you know, they don't have paper diapers. And and here we have, you know, disposable diapers that are really bulky, but they keep kids' legs further apart. Um, and so the walking norms and when kids bring their legs together for more efficient walking happen later in, in a diapered culture than a non-diapered culture. Um, so just motor trajectories are, are culturally influenced. Um, but I also think um, we can go to even smaller examples, like when a baby, you know, makes the motor actions that makes a parent, you know, engage, right? If baby makes O mouth or they make a coo sound, the parents, you know, have a certain response to that, a certain motor response, their face to that, a certain sound response that they make. Um, and that might be different between cultures. Some cultures might click at their babies because that's what they do in their culture. And the baby learns to click back. Um, if the parents smile and rub the baby, the baby's gonna reach and rub back with them. And so the motor actions that define relationship are different between cultures. Um, and it's important again, to appreciate um, where that family is coming from as a therapist 
and how those sort of motor um, developmental milestones are actuated within that culture. What you're highlighting is the curiosity that you have about that. And the fact that culture is part of our framework in a secret has trained us to ask questions, to be curious about what role culture plays in this child's development and learn to appreciate and be curious about if engagement looks different in that culture. When you're giving the practical examples of how the parent responds either facially or vocally to an infant, they did a great job in the article of bringing up some cultural practices um, that have impacted motor development. And two of the ones, um, one you highlighted was um, diaper wearing, and they actually measured how much later walking could be depending on how much, what diaper type you wore by weeks and by months um, that motor development was impacted. And you and I both um, had babies when back to sleep was kind of relatively new. And we were beginning to see how the back to sleep movement um, in an attempt to reduce sudden infant death syndrome started to affect the development of prone motor skills. Yeah. I guess I think it's also interesting. And I think if, you know, if we have one message to occupational therapists who are listening is how much we've gained from being trained to consider culture in our clinical practice, but specifically what has it relates to um, engagement, motor development, sensory processing opportunity. Yeah, I think that I think that you hit a couple of points that I think are really important is that is that curiosity, not judgment. I had one one early in my career, I had one mom whose baby um, was not learning to walk or crawl and had this really widespread legs. Um, and they were really concerned about this baby. And it turns out that they, the mom lived in a homeless shelter. And the mom was a teen mom and she was gloriously attached to her baby. And she kept that baby on her hip all the time because putting her baby down in the homeless shelter seemed like an unsafe choice in her mind of protecting her baby. And so her motor, but it was impacting um, the baby's ability to develop and grow. And I think that honoring how hard she was working to keep her baby safe um, was is important to like teaching her ways to be safe and still learn the motor skills that the baby needed to learn. And so I think that um, that curiosity and not judgment is really important um, when working with any any family. Um, and I think that the culture of um, like you said, really appreciating our own cultures of what supports and what are not just barriers to development, but what are we doing culturally that support a child? What are parents doing that are really culturally that are really supporting the child? And so maybe the family is a singing family and you know, like, oh, culturally that really helps your child de develop some rhythm and movement. Let's keep going with that. I don't know, you're just finding the pieces that, you know, that also support a child, not just our barriers to child culturally are really important. I love that strengths-based approach, and it really brings us to the final piece of this article, which is motor development is enabling, because if you approach 
your clients and their challenges from a strengths-based perspective, you can figure out ways in which not only are they already enabling some really positive things, but you can use some of those strengths to further enable motor development. Um, and I, I have witnessed that parents are very open to ideas and being willing to change. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the summary of this article in that, that all of these motor opportunities enable us to be more, um, more capable, more enabled, literally enabled um, to be um, functional in the world. And that's our goal, right, as OTs, is, is how coming back to function. Can we functionally adapt um, to a challenge in a different context um, in a different situation with different people. Like, can we be adaptive and have an adaptive response um, when you know we're presented with new opportunities and we're presented with novelty? Um, and so, all of these opportunities that you know are afforded in our environments, are afforded in our relation, our encultured relationships, uh, in our bodies. When those come together, we are more capable. Um, we feel more capable. Um, one of the things that I, I, one of the major complaints I have in the kids that I mentioned at the very beginning is their parents say, they say, I can't a lot. Um, or you hear the teachers say, he says, I can't a lot. And that to me in a four-year-old feels so sad. <laughs> My heart goes out to a four-year-old who thinks they can't because that's the wonder of childhood is that powerfulness that comes from being in the world and actuating on the world. And we really want to give them those little bodies back the power in their body that says I can. And I think there's um, there may be top down approaches that people want to use with these kids who do not feel enabled. Um, but I philosophically believe that bottom up intervention that re-puts the power and the autonomy back into their bodies or in, initially into their bodies. So their bodies feel enabled, that their bodies feel capable, that they can say, they can do things. And in fact, when kids graduate from um, my intern, kids with motor challenges graduate from my intervention, uh, we always make an I can list, right? Where they can, and we list all the things that they can do and we send it home and they add to the list. Um, because ultimately that is the end game for them, that they approach the world with an I can body and an I can mentality that says, you know, I'm capable. I love that. I think that's a great way, way to bring this full circle to recognize um, how motor development is all of the things that this article highlights that it is. I can't recommend this article enough. I just think it was a beautiful and detailed way to um, capture a lot of the nuance that we witness as occupational therapists. So we definitely will have a reference um, in the show notes for this article in case anybody is interested in reading it. Um, one thing from this article, preparing for this conversation, that I am really curious about and want to think more about is what affordances are and what they um, do to support motor and psychological development. 
What's one idea that you had before reading this article or in the course of preparing for our conversation that maybe changed the way you thought about something or maybe evolved um, or made you want to know more? Uh, I, I'm not sure that I, it changed my way, but I think it reaffirms my belief that development is, is interconnected and dynamic. Um, and that the sort of theory of dynamic systems theory is that every aspect of development is intricately related to every other aspect of development and that having a challenge in one area can really stun um, our ability to really go progress in other areas. And I think that appreciating that to a deeper level has been a, um, a benefit I've gotten out of reading this article. That's great. Tell me something you're curious about right now. Um, I have my curiosities run in 20 different directions as well. <laughs> but um, I was recently gifted the Cambridge Handbook of Infant Development, which even, you know, after 20 years of practicing with infant development, I am devouring. It's 800 and something pages long, but I am um, it really speaks to that dynamic systems theory and that interconnected space of looking at development through a lens that I think I wasn't initially taught. Um, and so I just, like I said, I'm devouring that book right now. That's great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you do, both with individual families and as a STAR faculty member in teaching um, the star frame of reference to occupational therapists. I always come away from our conversations with a lot to think about and um, with new curiosities myself. So I really do appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Carrie. This was fun. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C A R R I E. S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The Star Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's www.sensoryhealth.org. There you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the STAR Institute, especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Pluchek. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.